Thank you, buddy. Good job. Thank you, Brother Brian, for sharing your daughter's testimony. I don't know exactly how I'm going to get that into a sermon, but I, I'm determined that I'll find a way. When I saw him baptizing again, it reminded me of the first baptisms we had in this auditorium. I think we had three or four that night, didn't we? And every time he took them back, their feet threw up, full up in the air. Everybody was just giggling by the third or fourth person, everybody except Brian. He saw no humor in it whatsoever. I hope now, years later, that uh, he finds some humor in that. It was very humorous. Uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to cancel the rest of the service because my iPad would not load my sermon. Well, it's terrible to torture you like that, isn't it? That's why I keep paper copies. Take your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter number 8. Ecclesiastes chapter number 8. The question for this evening is, can we trust the government? And the answer is, no. (laughs) Well, you're right online with the rest of America. Apparently, I I read a survey, recent survey, that had been taken of Americans about answering the question, can we trust our government? 87% said no. That means there are only, if my math is correct, only 13% of Americans who really trust the government. Um, And as our country approaches another national election, perhaps it has never been more obvious that there are two very different philosophies about how our nation should be governed. There are those who say that what we need is for there to be more government involvement in the lives of individuals. And then there's the rest of us who say we need less government uh, involvement and regulation in the lives of its citizens. I heard Brother Howard this morning quote the most feared words one can hear in this country. You know what those are? I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. As King Solomon continues to investigate the value of wisdom, he came face to face with the problem of evil in the world, with a problem, which is a problem that no rational person can honestly avoid. <clears throat> Skeptics are forever raising the question, if there is a God, why is there so much evil in the world? Does God know about it and just doesn't care? Or does he know and care, but he just doesn't have the power to do anything to change it? Of course, we can turn that, those questions on their head and ask the question, where does all the good in the world come from? If we look at the glories and the complexities of nature, it's hard to believe that all of this evolved from nothing. Solomon does not deny the existence of evil, but neither does he deny the existence and power of God. I want to share with you from Ecclesiastes chapter 8 some very helpful thoughts, I hope. One, the reflection on wisdom. He says, first of all, that true wisdom cannot be found apart from God. He said, who is like a wise man 
and who knows the interpretation of a thing. Solomon wrote in Proverbs, in Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life and and he who has it will abide in satisfaction and he will not be visited with evil. He says the fear of the Lord is not only the beginning of wisdom, but it is the source of true and lasting satisfaction in life. In the New Testament, James tells us that if we lack wisdom, that we can ask of God. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and who gives it all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then in the second part of verse 1, he talks about our need to radiate the love of God. He said, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. So spending time with the Son of God is like spending time out in the sun, S-U-N. The light of God that has touched our lives will shine forth in a way that others can see it. It's like spending time in the sun. The more time you spend, the more that your skin is affected. You either get darker or, in my case, redder. It is the same with spending time with the Son of God. We will radiate Jesus if we spend time with him. If you want to be more like Jesus, then what you need to do is spend more time with Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftliness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. For if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And later in his letter to the church at Philippi, he wrote about what the church should be in an ungodly society. In Philippians 2.15, he said, I want you to become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you will shine as lights in the world. As children of God, followers of God, we are to admonish to radiate the love of God in our lives to the degree that others will take note and see that God makes a difference in our lives. I read a rather striking example of this that came from an essay written in 2008. It was published in the Times, and it was entitled, Why Africa Needs God. Well, it's 
all the more noteworthy about this particular essay was it was written by Matthew Paris, who is a prominent atheist. And it was about his childhood experiences in Africa. This is what he wrote. Although Paris made it clear that he did not believe in God at all, he admitted that Christianity made a tangible difference in the lives of the people that he grew up with in his home in Malawi and in other countries across Africa. Not only did he admire the good work that Christians were doing to care for the poor and the sick, but he also liked the way they looked. He said the Christians were different. Their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world. Whenever we entered the territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people we passed. Something in their eyes. It's strange but true, a relationship with God can even change the way that people look. He secondly commends us not only in reflecting on uh, wisdom, but on responding to civil authority, in, beginning in verse 2. He says, I say, keep the king's commands for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. Who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because of every matter, there is a time and judgment. Though the misery of man increases greatly, for he does not know what will happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? No one has the power over the spirit to retain the spirit and no one has the power in the day of death there's no release from that war and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it all this I have seen and applied in my heart to every work that is done under the sun there is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt he says since the king the word of the king is authoritative Nobody in their right mind says to the king, what do you think you're doing? Nobody has the audacity to say him. He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, he says, for a wise heart knows that there's a proper time and procedure, for there's a proper time and procedure for every delight. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has the authority to restrain the wind or the authority over the day of death. If you're wanting to get a discharge from the army, he says, don't look for it to happen in times of war. That's the last time that you're going to be able to get a discharge from the army. All this I have seen, he says, and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man's heart. The first point made in this section is that government is legitimate. God has established government. 
And therefore, it is wise to obey the commands of the king, or in our day, it is wise to obey the laws of the land. Governments exist because God allows them to exist. And when you pledge your allegiance to a country, then God takes your pledge seriously. Now, we're going to see in just a few moments uh, that Paul had some advice uh, in Romans chapter 13 about what it meant to live as subjects in civil authority. But Solomon says, and Paul will agree with this, if you do not obey, then you're going to be punished. The government does not bear the sword in vain. In dealing with sedition or treason, it says the king will do whatever he pleases. The scripture consistently teaches that we ought to be honest and contributing citizens. We ought to vote, and we ought to encourage other people to vote. When we see oppression and injustice, we should attempt to see that the courts and the legislators are responsive to that. We should be wise enough to use the system. That's what he means when he says a proper time and procedure to bring about the desired results, to seek ways in which we can right the things that are wrong. God uses governments to restrain some of the possibilities for evil. We are gloriously gifted of God to live in this country, and we need to respond to that by being active and obedient servants. Obviously, it was a faceless national election, and I'll probably, probably say more of that, about that in the weeks coming. One tendency that we hear, not one tendency, I guess, but several tendencies we hear, we hear, number one, people who say, if so-and-so is elected, I'm moving to Canada. That's a real honest answer. And secondly, I don't see anybody I want to vote for, so I'm not going to vote. Both of those responses are wrong. By the way, neither of those will help the situation that we're in. I think part of that is it seems like between every national election and the turning of the parties involved, we think that this party and the affiliation with this party is going to change everything in America for the better. And it's not. It's not going to. That's not where we need to find our peace That's not where we need to find our strength. The Apostle Paul, though, wrote to the church at Rome. Now, you remember Rome, right? You remember that system? The emperor was head of that system, and they were not notorious for being liberal. They were not notorious for giving away rights unnecessarily. It could be very dictatorial and very difficult to live under. And yet this is what he wrote in Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse number 1. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, I'll stop and say that does not mean that we should obey laws that are morally wrong. That's a different thing altogether. For rulers are not a terror, he says, to good works. He says, in effect, he's saying, 
If you do what's right, you don't have to be afraid. It's when you don't obey the laws that you have to be afraid that the government's going to come after you. For he is God's minister for you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. That phrase means the state has the ability to carry out capital punishment. That's what the sword is talking about. He says, but he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but because of conscience sake. Not only do you need to be obedient because you're afraid you're going to get caught or you're afraid you're going to be punished, you need to do so because it's the right thing to do. Your conscience is telling you that you need to do it. For because of this, you may pay taxes. You also pay taxes. I've been among Christians who said, I'm not going to pay my taxes because I don't believe what the government's doing with my money is right. It appears to me that Apostle Paul doesn't give you that option. He says, pay your taxes. First half of what Jesus said about that, you remember what he said? He says, render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's. And the second half is also true, and render unto God the things that are God's. He says, for because of this you pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to do this very thing. Render therefore all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, Paul wasn't alone in those sentiments. The apostle Peter also wrote to Christians concerning their citizenship. Uh, In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty, as a cloak for vile, vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. It doesn't do any good for us to get all worked up about the failing of the government of men. Because as long as the governments are made up of human beings, regardless of which political party is in charge at the time, there will be imperfect governments. It is a better philosophy to simply obey the law, do the right things, trust in the Lord, and enjoy the fruit of your labor. And then in verse 8, he talks about death. Solomon reminds us, he says, No one has the power over the spirit to retain the spirit. He says, when it comes your time to die, you're not going to be able to hold your spirit within your body. And no one has the power 
in the day of death. Of course, we understand that the writer of Hebrews said, it's appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment. The psalmist says, then that the wisest course of action is to allow the Lord to teach us to number our days. Now, he doesn't mean that we ought to sit down with a calculator and think, I'm going to live X number of days. He says you ought to sit down and realize that your life is temporary and that you ought to live every day for that day. Now, don't live for tomorrow. You may not have tomorrow, but you do have today. Don't live in regret about yesterday because you're losing today. In other words, we are challenged to live mindful that this life is temporary at best. So regardless of what we do or say, there are some things that we cannot change and that we cannot escape. Two of those things are death and taxes. We cannot escape the inevitableness of death and we must endure the government of men. And then third, he talks about reacting to injustice. That bothered Solomon a lot. Bothers me a lot. I don't like to see it when evil people get ahead, people that don't live right, live long, seem to prosper. That really bothered Solomon. And I can only imagine because he had so much a superior intellect that it really, really bothered Solomon to see that. He says in verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had done so. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his, his life, his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor would, will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said this is also vanity. Well, we understand that there's injustice in this world. I still believe that we have the greatest legal system in the world, but it's far from perfect because it's made up of imperfect people. The famous trial lawyer F. Lee Bailey said, in America an acquittal does not mean you are innocent, it just means you beat the rap. Sometimes that's true. The poet Robert Frost defined a jury as 12 people chosen to decide who has the best lawyer. Also true. Sometimes. In verse 10, Solomon <clears throat> reports on having attended a funeral. Here was a man who attended the temple, he said, 
frequently. He was praised by men, but in fact, he was an ungodly man. He was wicked. There had been a magnificent funeral, an eloquent eulogy. While there are godly people in the world, in the city itself, who are ignored and forgotten. That's also true. Jesus acknowledged in his great sermon on the mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45, that it is true God makes his sun shine on the evil and on the good, and he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. Yet scripture reminds us that while it is true that God is long-suffering towards sinners and he does not immediately judge wrongdoing, that does not mean that judgment is not coming. First Peter chapter 3 reminds us that just because he's long-suffering only proves that God is good, does not prove that evil will win. Solomon understands, and in verse 12 and 13, he talks about that, that eventually God is going to judge the wicked and he's going to reward the righteous. Which brings us to the last, the fourth and last part of his message, recognizing the mysteries in life. He says in verse 15, So I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the works of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Solomon maintains that God's mysteries defy human explanation, and they go beyond human intellect. The French philosopher Pascal said, if there were no obscurity, then man would not feel his corruption. If there were no light, man could not hope for a cure. Thus, it is only right but useful for us that God should, not, should be partially concealed and partially revealed. Since it is equally dangerous for a man to know God without knowing his own sinfulness as it is to know his own sinfulness without knowing God. Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 22 verse 33 how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. It is no more unnatural that God's revelation should overwhelm our understanding than the sun in its full blaze should overwhelm our sight. For the first, fourth time, Solomon told his readers, what you need to do is enjoy what you've been given. Enjoy your life. In chapter 2 and verse 22, 24, in chapter 3 and verses 12 through 15, in chapters 5 and 18 and through 20, and now again here in verse 15, he tells us, enjoy what you have. 
Now, Solomon is not giving the hedonistic, hedonistic philosophy. What you need to do is eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying rather what you need to do is have an outlook that's based on faith. Believers are to accept life as a special gift from God. And instead of complaining about what we do not have, we ought to be grateful for what we do have. And we should be thankful and enjoy what God has given. Let's pray. Father, we'd be the first to admit that many of the things that Solomon said are hard. Hard for us to wrap our minds around, our intellect. Perhaps as much so as Solomon found it difficult to understand your ways. Why there is evil in the world. Why good people sometimes do not advance and evil people do. Would we accept, Lord, that in all of this you have a plan and a purpose? We accept under all of this that you're good and that you have our best interests at heart. I pray that you'd help us to live our lives not consumed with looking for something beyond what we have, but able to really enjoy the present to enjoy the gifts that you have placed into our hands, to enjoy the privilege of being born into a country where we have the freedoms that we have. We have the blessings that we have. Lord, forgive us when we're not thankful. And help us, Lord, uh, to tune ourselves to your word and to your will. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.